Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? Oh, David, I am not good. I have spent You're the past good. week. I have spent the past week sitting in a dark room, rocking gently back and back and <laughs> forth, clutching my vintage Mr. Potato Head, <laughs> waiting for the police to come and take it from me. <laughs> terrible times, David. Terrible times. Uh, well, Frank, good news. You have a champion in, in the form of, of Congressman Jim Jordan, who, uh, like many Republicans, has called out uh, so-called cancel culture. In fact, the theme for the recent CPAC conference was American uncanceled, despite the fact they actually end up canceling one of the speakers for saying anti-Semitic things. Um, so we want to talk about cancel culture today and to talk about some, which seems to be a, a relatively recent term, although the phenomenon on itself may not be that recent, talk about what cancel culture is and, and try to sort of put it into some historical context. Uh, Frank, we, what is, I'm not sure I fully understand what cancel culture is. I've heard a lot of talk about it, especially over the past two years. And I've seen some examples that people have pointed out of, of Mr. Potato Head, as you point out, some uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, books uh, have been recently pointed out, but other people, Roseanne Barr, Louis C.K. What what is this thing, and how would we define it? Yeah, we need to warn the listeners. Uh, based on our pre-show uh, discussion, when we tried to come up with a definition, we weren't very successful. Uh, it's, I mean, cancel culture is uh, this is this is one person's definition. That is mine. Is a kind of phenomena that's achieved prominence in the past few years, although, as you say, it's got much deeper roots going back centuries, uh, but it's really taken off, if you will, um, uh, as a kind of uh, issue in the culture war in the past three or four years. Really, I suspect in its current iteration with the uh, Me Too movement in 2017 gave it a lot of energy uh, combined with the, the uh, I'm not defining it, I'm describing circumstances, I realize that, I'll get to a definition in a second. Combined with social media, the explosion of social media, especially Twitter, I think where, where this is concerned, where cancel culture is concerned, add to that Trumpism and the aftermath of Trumpism now, Plus the pandemic and the fact that people have been locked down for the past year and had a lot, lot of time to spend on Twitter and other mm. forms of social media. So that, that's, if you will, that's the, that's the environment, uh, which I think has given uh, birth to this current iteration of cancel culture. But cancel culture, I guess, as a, as a short term definition for our purposes, is the uh, public criticism and shaming, but I'm using shaming, again, people can't see, I'm using air quotes. The public criticism and shaming of individuals, sometimes institutions, but mainly individuals for behavior, which is considered, and the passive voice working, doing a lot of work there, is considered offensive or inappropriate for some reason. Hmm. And I think this takes a number of forms. It takes the form of sometimes celebrities, and you gave a couple of examples, Louis C.K. and Roseanne Barr in recent years, but also individuals. There are lots of examples of so-called 
um, Karens that we've seen, uh, especially again on Twitter and other forms of social media during lockdown. So somebody who loses their uh, temper in a, in a public situation like a supermarket or at a Starbucks or whatever, and goes on a rant and starts screaming at people, often saying quite offensive things it should be mm. said. Um, or harassing often non-white people in public and they are filmed and then that film is shared and, and, and then that person is alleged, is criticized and this is interpreted as so-called cancellation. I think the, uh, another key element to this and uh, be interested to hear what you want to add to the definition is the whole debate over renaming buildings and, and taking down statues as well. That's also been, it's a catch-all term for consequences of bad behavior. That's a, that's a simple way to, to, to define it. But I think this the, the, the background I've discussed, the kind of environment is important for understanding it. How would you define it, David? Uh, I, I think it's kind of a slippery term that almost doesn't have a, a definition because it does describe these different kinds of phenomenon which are uh, ascertained. Um, you know, we associate it with cancel culture, this critique with the right, although there is a, a left-wing critique of cancel culture. There was a letter, a uh, public letter in Harper's uh, couple, about a year or so ago that was signed by a number of, of figures across the political spectrum, including people like Noam Chomsky, who decried um, silencing of, of, on, of popular opinions. Um, so, you know, there's a version of this in which cancel culture is just political correctness 30 years later. Yeah. Um, but, but I think it's describing a phenomenon of, of, of social pressure, of ostracism, of shunning, of public shaming, of ethical consumerism, of boycotts, of individuals and corporations deciding simply to stop doing something they've done for a while that people have grown attached to. Um, you know, the Dr. Seuss example is a good one. The Dr. Seuss estate decided to, I guess, no longer publish new editions of, of four of Dr. Seuss's books uh, because of, of some uh, content in those books that some people have found offensive. Um, it's very strange to have Republicans, people on the right, criticize a private entity for deciding to not do something because that seems like they are, are, are limiting the freedom of speech of the, the Seuss estate, which seems kind of odd. The four books in question are not books anybody particularly cares about. It's not like, you know, Cat in the Hat or One Fish, Two Fish. These are, you know, books that are, are relatively obscure in the Dr. Seuss canon. Yeah, these are deep um, cuts. And I mean, if, if the thing about Dr. I've, I've thought about Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head because, you know, why not? Um, if you look at the history of Dr. Seuss, some of his early material is actually pretty racist. The stuff he produces during the Second World War is very anti-Japanese. And he later regretted that. Like he later was consciously over the course of his life, you know, hostile to his own early work and worked to suppress his own early work. And he actually changed the text of some of his books because he later in life was uncomfortable with some of the things he wrote earlier in his life. 
Uh, so this is actually in keeping with what Dr. Seuss himself probably would have done were he to live to an uh, abnormally long age. Um, but it's not like these books are going to disappear from libraries. If you really wanted to get a hold of these books, that's not a hard thing to do particularly. Um, and the other Dr. Seuss books, and the, this is the strange thing about cancel culture, the other Dr. Seuss books are selling much better now because these four books that nobody was reading anyway are, have been quote unquote canceled. Um, the canceling of the Mr. Potato Head uh, it just infuriates me. Did you ever play with the Mr. Potato Head, Frank? I love Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head. The, the Potato Heads were among my favorite toys as a child. Okay, I, okay, I so love Mr. Potato Head. Okay, yeah. so, so these are good toys, right? And, and what's happened is that they used to sell the Mr. Potato Head and the Mrs. Potato Head and various other kinds of potato heads. Like, you know, they have a Darth Tater who's a, you know, a Darth Vader potato head. And there's all kinds of versions of this thing, right? It's a potato toy. For those people who aren't familiar, it's a classic potato toy that has various sort of slots in it. You can put in arms and hats and eyes and things, right? Well, they decided no longer to have a separate Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. The entire premise of the toy though, is you're supposed to be able to mix and max genders and wacky things. And you know you can take the stuff from the Mrs. Potato Head and stick it on the head of the Mrs. Potato Head and say, oh, look, he's got a sword and a you know, weird hat and a purse. Like that's part of the purpose of the toy is to be permeable and malleable with a, the identity of the potato. Yes, because no, well, you know, your, your description is fine. My understanding of the alleged canceling of Mr. Potato Head, hence my comment at the beginning of at the top of the mm. of the show, was that they're not even doing that. They're not getting rid of the title of Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. They're getting rid of the name Mr. Potato Head for this series of yeah, toys. Yeah. So it's just going to be called Potato Head, which I think is quite yeah. cool. Potato Head is great. You know? um, and so they, they, they're dropping the they're dropping his title, not 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 the yeah. actual toy itself. So so exactly. He, he's right. the, the toy will continue to exist. And Hasbro, the toy corporation uh, that, that produces Mr. Potato Head, has just decided not to call them Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. They're just going to be called Potato Heads now. This is not a great crime against the culture, I don't think think i also i think well, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it really matters frankly but 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 i but i don't think this is uh, a good example of cancel culture either I, I mean to follow up your your earlier point about the, okay so the seuss foundation or whatever it's called deciding not to bring out these books because they're the caretakers of his legacy uh, well that's a private mm -hmm. foundation take making a decision uh that's you know, in, in, that's well within their, their rights, both legally and frankly, of the remit of the organization. Similarly, Hasbro is a private corporation that's selling a toy. And if they believe the best way to sell this toy is to change the name of the series of toys, um, then that's a private corporation doing its thing. I would have thought that uh, conservatives in the United States who claim to, to support free markets would have been in favor of the corporation doing that because the market will decide. If people don't like the newly branded potato heads, yeah. they won't buy if them. <laughs> if this is the, the new Coke of potato heads and what they really right. want is the old thing, then the bark, but, um, but I think you know, it does feed into all these sort of, of, of contempt, you know, unexpected ways, Mr. Potato Head is representative of the contemporary debates about gender identity, uh, 
and what have you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think David, if you'll if you'll indulge me for a second, I think you're right. I mean, I think the potato head issue really goes to some interesting questions about gender identification in ways that I'm not sure were intended when the toy was created 60 years ago. Um, but but but. Uh, to give you two quotes on why this has salience, because we're, we're playing, I mean, we're sort of faux, oh, I can't believe that people on the right would object to this because these are private in organizations doing their thing. The reason they're doing it is because of the cultural war, right? Mm. And so I've got two quotes for you about cancel culture. One is from an essay by Senator Tom Carton of Arkansas that appeared in the New York Times last year to a great deal of attention. Um, and Senator Carton said, cancel culture whether in its Maoist or its Jacobin forms, ultimately is animated by a single idea that America at its core is fundamentally irredeemably irredeemable and wicked. Now, first of all, Yikes. I don't believe the Jacobins had much of a view on America one way or the other, or if they did, they were probably pro-US at that point mm. because the US was seen in the 1790s as a radical alternative to monarchy, but we'll leave that aside. Then we move on to President Trump at Mount Rushmore last summer when he, he spoke at Mount Rushmore uh, on the 4th of July. And he said, and he, if you remember that speech, he was defending uh, American history and statues from being uh, torn down by cultural iconoclasts and, and being canceled. And he, re he referenced cancel culture in words that were probably written by Stephen Miller, describing mm -hmm. it as saying, it is completely alien to our culture and our values, and it is absolutely no place in the United States of America. So what's really at play here, of course, at least in and there is an international dimension of this, but we, which we won't have time for. But in the U.S. context, cancel culture has become a shorthand on the part of people in the right to sum up changes in the culture that they don't like. And so the pushback last week was about Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss, because these are things that most Americans, particularly Americans of a certain age, and I'm thinking white Americans like ourselves, David, you know, yeah. we're, remember from our childhood. And if you're only paying attention to the headlines and it seems like they're canceling Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head, it feeds a narrative of what the hell's wrong with the country? What direction is it going in? There's nothing wrong with these things because on balance, there is nothing wrong with Mr. Potato Head or Potato Head or, and the cat in the hat. And if you don't go beyond that, you think that's crazy. You know, th that's the, the crazy left, the loony left coming to take away things that make America, America. And that, that that's the subtext of those two quotes, I think. It's this holding back change or stopping change from an imagined threat that frankly doesn't exist. Hasbro did not, did, neither Hasbro nor the Dr. Seuss Foundation did anything wrong last week or did anything even that controversial once you, you drill down a little bit. Does that, would you agree I, with that? Yeah, no, that, yeah. So I think there's like, you know, one category of, of cancel culture that is about sort of corporate choices about what kinds of things they want to sell. And I would put the sort of rebranding of Van Chimaim and Uncle Ben's in that same category yeah. where, where the corporations have decided like these are no longer viable in the contemporary uh, you know, milieu to, to, to brand our products this way. So we're going to change the name of our things. Um, corporations changing the names of their products is something that happens all the time, but people are attached to these brands for whatever reason. How about like the other sort of half of it is about canceling individuals. And, and, and you, you drew an, an important distinction, I think, earlier between public individuals who are being quote unquote canceled and then sort of the uh, private citizens who, who do 
reprehensible things in public and then get shamed for it on, on Twitter and what have you. Um, how are we to make sense at, uh, of, of, of cancel culture when it's about Roseanne Barr or about um, Louis C.K. Or, or what have you? Yeah, I mean, one thing, and in fact, I should go back and uh, clarify this. When I talked about Me Too being an important context for this, mm -hmm. I think it is. But the Me Too movement, when it really took off in 2017, and I'm talking about that hashtag and the social media dimension to it, was and remains an important kind of response to institutionalized sexual harassment and sexual violence. Um, well, we've now learned around the world that by engaged by political figures, cultural figures, and so on. And so in that context, I'm thinking Harvey Weinstein here, right? Okay. There was a, there was a, mm. that cancellation, if you will, was an attempt to, and an ongoing, it represents an ongoing attempt to address injustice, frankly, and, and lawbreaking. Mm. And what we saw, so Louis C.K. is a good example, the comedian who was caught up in the Me Too movement. I say caught up as though it was an accident. You know, he was implicated by his, for his actions, which seemed to have been pretty outrageous, mm. and claims to have been suffered, claims to have suffered and been canceled, except he's come back. I mean, he's not as he's not as successful yeah. as he was. I mean, he's a good example of somebody who did really, I think, su whose career suffered as a result of his actions or seems to have. But he hasn't lost his career. Yeah, and that, the uh, similar kinds of thing happens for different reasons with uh, Gina Carino, the, the actress from. Um, uh, who was removed from the Star Wars property, uh, but then got a, a right-wing media deal immediately thereafter. Right, right. Uh, or, so. or Morgan uh, was Morgan Wallen, who was uh, a country singer who was uh, heard on tape issuing a, a racial slur. You know, he got pulled from the radio, but his actually his record sales went up. Right, right, right. So, the, and these, those are examples of people who have allegedly been canceled, and I'm definitely using air quotes now, mm -hmm. for whom the, the consequences have not been necessarily as dire as they seem at the time, but then they become celebrated for their alleged cancellation because, and, and have been adopted again in, on, in ele among elements of the political culture um, mm -hmm. and celebrated as kind of victims and heroes or martyrs to, to free speech. Then we also have the people that you were talking about who I find more complicated, if you will, mm -hmm. kind of individuals who get caught up, ordinary, I'm saying ordinary individuals who get caught up uh, usually by their own poor actions. I want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. But whether it's, you know, we've had dozens of these videos of people, men and women at Costco or Walmart or whatever, screaming because they won't wear masks or laying on the floor because they won't wear a mask. Now, I, I believe this behavior is idiotic. I want to make that clear. But whether, you know, when you see the kind of hashtag Twitter do your thing or people mm. share these videos and I think, OK, these people are idiots and we've always had idiots amongst us. Do they really need to be punished for the rest of their lives because the no. internet is forever for their stupidity. But then we also need to draw a distinction. So they, we talked about this off air and I think we talked about this when it happened last year, you know, during the lockdown early, early on during the lockdown last year, there was the case in central park of the, the, the African-American uh, man who was, who was bird watching and a white woman who was walking her dog called the police on him and claimed that he, she had been assaulted by him. She had not. 
she was doing this and she did it to threaten him uh, because there was an interaction between mm-hmm. him and her dog. The details don't matter. The point being, she lost her job. This was filmed. She did suffer consequences and to my mind probably deserved to suffer those consequences given what we know and what we knew then about the potential for police violence against African-American men in particular. This was shortly before George Floyd was killed. Uh, Her action could have had very, very serious consequences um, for an innocent man. And then so she was publicly shamed as a result of this. The video was shared. She lost her job. She's, in fact, things got so bad for her that the the gentleman concerned actually issued a statement saying, look, leave her alone. Mm-hmm. So I am interested as to the question of, it seems to me that the only people who truly get canceled in this moment are individuals who act badly. Not celebrities, but kind of ordinary, relatively ordinary individuals. And in some cases, while their behavior is reprehensible, I do wonder where the limit is and whether they should suffer for the rest of their lives. Now, I, 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 I think the Central Park case, I, I almost want to set that aside because I think the consequences for that could have been could have been deadly, in fact. But I'm talking about idiots in Walmart or, or Starbucks or whatever who refuse to wear masks. I, I, what do you think about that? So well, I think there's... I mean, one of the things I think that, that happens uh, that sort of makes this different is that, you know, I think uh, one, of the, the, one of the ways to sort of frame cancel culture is a kind of, of, of social ostracism. Right. And the person who behaves in an outrageous way in a Walmart screaming at somebody and then ends up being having that video and put on Twitter is going to be shamed in one way. That person would have been shamed in a different way 30 years ago, assuming that the community she's from found their behavior outrageous. Oh, did you hear what so-and-so did at Walmart the other day? Oh, we're not going to invite her to our cocktail party or sit next to her in church or whatever. There's going to be a kind of social consequence for bad action. Obviously, this is the technology uh, creates a sort of new framework for it. It makes it on a much larger scale. and sometimes we have situations where uh, behavior that is condoned within a local community, uh, but is not condoned within a broader internet community or parts of the internet community is gonna mean that, that these, these behaviors can be read differently. Um, a lot of the examples we've been talking about are, are, are on about uh, figures on the right being canceled per se. How, how do figures like say Colin Kaepernick or maybe the Dixie Chicks, to pick a slightly older example, how do they fit? And they're not even called the Dixie Chicks anymore. No. Um, but at the time they were, how, how do they fit into this uh, rubric or how do they fit into to cancel culture? Well, that's a good question. And, and I'm glad you picked some examples like that, David. I mean, with the Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks, uh, I think they're very similar. I don't think their actions were similar to Morgan Wallen's, but I think if you look at what happened, um, so, so what happened with the Dixie Chicks is they were doing a show in London and one of them said, I'm embarrassed to be from Texas. So this was during the Iraq war and the run up to the Iraq war. So it was almost 20 years ago now, but, uh, it was an early, early aughts and, um, said some things critical of both Texas and president Bush in the content, in a show outside of the United States. And this led to widespread protests across the country music world 
and burning of CDs. This was back when CDs were a thing. Uh, destruction of CDs and things like this. Mm. Uh, and and the Dixie Chicks were there was an attempt to cancel them. That was pretty significant, I think, especially given the right of center tilt of country music, at least as an ind- as a kind of corporate entity. Mm. Um, not necessarily the fandom, but 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 um, and, and so there were consequences. But of course, they were also embraced by the left as um, as kind of martyrs in the same way that um, I can't remember the, the name of the actress, who, the, the actor, the, the woman kicked out of the Star Wars universe last yeah. week. Gina uh, Carino. Yeah. Thank you. Gina Carino um, was. Uh, and so, so I think I think that's analogous. Colin Kaepernick is more interesting to me. Because I think he was canceled. And so Colin Kaepernick, and we've talked about this in the past, who, of course, was the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, who was, you know, took a knee. He was the first one, to, not the first one to take a knee, but began protesting by taking a knee uh, during the national anthem, the singing of the national anthem or the playing of the national anthem in response to police violence against, uh, particularly against black Americans. Um, and Colin Kaepernick lost his job and has never played again. And now, you know, I'm always struck. I was watching the Premier League yesterday and now, you know, they, uh, as they have since last summer, at the beginning of every match, all the players and the referees take a knee. And this has become kind of standard and they, there's an acknowledgement of racial violence and racial prejudice. Um, Colin Kaepernick started that. Colin Kaepernick lost his job and never got it back. Now, yeah. Colin Kaepernick has become a very powerful and influential an outspoken activist uh, and doesn't seem to regret his choice, uh, but that's, he lost his job. I mean, if anyone's been canceled lately mm. in the past five or six years, Colin Kaepernick's the best example, I think, David. And, and, yeah. and he was on the left, not on the right. Right, to be sure. Now, you mentioned a, a phrase earlier that I think is, is, is uh, sort of relevant to some of the ways in which this gets discussed, and that's about free speech murders. How does free speech and, and the First Amendment fit into this discussion? Because crit- critis- crit- critics of cancel culture often you know, say, see this as a violation of, of free speech and of the First Amendment. Um, do you want to reflect on that? Yes. I mean, the First Amendment does not protect you. It protects you from state persecution for what you say. It does not protect you from your employer saying things so or your if, publisher or your publisher so if, if again i can't remember gina carano yeah if gina carano wants to be outspoken on social media and say some outrageous things the disney corporation i i don't know the exact wording of her contract but i suspect the disney corporation her contract would have allowed disney to fire her or not to renew her, which is what they elected to do. That is not a violation of her First Amendment rights. She can say what she wants, but her employer can do what it wants within the law to, in, in response to that. Uh, I, I, so, so the First Amendment frequently, is frequently invoked here, but the First Amendment protects you and me from state interference with our speech. It doesn't mean that our speech doesn't have consequences. So again, if you're concerned about if I ran the zoo by Dr. Seuss, <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, that's not a free speech case. Don't buy the books until they bring them back into print. That 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 would be the that would be the one way to 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 do it. Uh, but but it's not a free speech issue. Mm. I I think that the first. Oh, sorry. I we shouldn't confuse free speech with the First Amendment. The mm. First Amendment protects 
your right to speak in particular contexts and protection from government interference and the government from oppressing you for your speech. It doesn't give you unrestricted free speech. Free speech is different. It's a broader category. But people often conflate the two, especially in these arguments. So people were very concerned. And again, Gina Carano is a good example. Mm. When she, you know, that was, she was canceled what, two or three weeks ago. When she was allegedly canceled, people were invoking the First Amendment. But the people who invoked the First Amendment to defend her didn't seem to invoke that First, Am the, the First Amendment to defend Colin Kaepernick. Right. And in both cases, whether it's the NFL or the Disney Corporation, they weren't violating people's First Amendment rights. We can disagree or we can agree or disagree with the actions taken by their, by their employers, but that's, it's not a First Amendment issue. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100 percent. Right? I think the first people misunderstand what the First Amendment is about. It's about, as you point out, it's about government intervention uh, with speech, not about private corporations or anybody else. So if you say something awful and your book con contract gets canceled, that's not a censorship. That's not um, a First Amendment violation. That's a corporation making a decision based on, on their best interests as they understand them. Um, which I think sort of puts this into, to, you know, thinking about cancel culture, trying to put this into some historical context. You know, if this is about uh, uh, public shaming or about, about corporations making choices to restrict certain voices, um, what are the analogies that, that come to mind to you? Well, I mean, the obvious uh, couple from my period is, of course, if you go back to the 17th century, of course, public shaming was a key element of kind of criminal justice mm. um, in colonial America, but also in, in Europe at the time as well. You know, without, a, without the ability to incarcerate people for long periods of time, public shaming was really what you had. Um, and mm. then you know, the Scarlet Letter is a case in point, right? You know, Nathaniel Hawthorne's yeah. 19th century novel about... Um, 17th century New England, uh, but also, I mean, I, I'm always struck when we when we have these little eruptions, David, because the American Revolution, the, the decade between 1765 and 1775, is characterized by commercial boycotts and protests, some of which mm. are violent, and they're often aimed at individuals and 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 um, affecting people's behavior by persecuting individuals, whether it's merchants who are importing in contravention to uh, non-importation agreements or, or boycotts adopted by the Sons of Liberty. And they published uh, placards and they, or, uh, and they put posters up that say, you know, don't buy from David Silkenat. He violated the, the non-importation agreement. He is not a friend to liberty in this country. The implication is tar and feather David Silkenat if you feel like it, just to make the point. But, this kind of public shaming and canceling, to use our contemporary mm. target, was a key element of the of 18th century political culture and played a key role in the American Revolution and the establishment of the country. And it certainly plays a role in the kind of political protests and the run up to the Civil War during your period, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you do have people boycotting, and we've talked about boycotting in the past, but boycotting consumer goods that were you know made with enslaved labor. So. They, you know, or banning textiles, banning sugar that was produced with enslaved labor and what have you. Um, I mean, the other sort of place where, where I think that there's an analogy, you know, because I think we're, what we're talking there is about consumer boycotts, you know, and, and whether that's in the 
you know, revolutionary context or in the 19th century context, or even in a more recent context, we can think of consumer boycotts of particular states like uh, the NAACP's boycott of South Carolina for the Confederate flag for a while. Um, your man, Bruce Springsteen, uh, helped to lead a boycott of North Carolina from their bathroom bill in 2016. Um, but the other part about it is, uh, I think there's a, an analogy with kind of uh, corporate blacklisting uh, for certain people they found distasteful. And I think about sort of the Hollywood blacklist as different in many ways, but in some ways partially analogous to the situation we're in now where they felt that they couldn't work with particular actors, particular uh, script writers, particular directors because of their uh, associations with, with communism or what have you. Do you think that's a decent analogy for what's going on now? Is, is, is that a, a similar kind of experience? Yeah. Um, a thought that occurs to me, as you said that, David, and, and I was thinking about Colin Kaepernick, and I hesitate to say this, I haven't thought this through completely, but would it be fair to say, or maybe everybody thinks this from their own political perspective, that actually there's more effective cancellation of people on the left by the right than the other mm. way around. But again, I, the reason I slightly hesitate in saying that is um, a more conservative critic might say, well, you would say that because you don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, sorry, let, let me finish. But implicit in, in using the word, the term canceled or cancellation culture or whatever is, mm. or cancel culture, excuse me, is that it's unjust, right? Mm. That, that if you've been canceled, it's, basically an overreaction by your political opponents who are persecuting you. But when it's just, it's not cancellation, right? It's, it's karma, it's consequences. It's, it's, sure. it's, it's uh, you know, you asked for it, you got it. Um, so maybe, maybe, maybe that invalidates that observation on my part, but it seems to me, if you think about the Hollywood blacklist in the fifties mm. and sixties, if you think about Colin Kaepernick, that the consequences often seem greater or more effective, frankly, for people on the left than the right, although it's invoked more on the right than the left. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a possibility. The other ways in which those two similar situations are similar uh, and is that the NFL is a, a monopoly of a handful of owners, right? There's, there's no alternative. I mean, there are alternatives no, to the NFL, but, but not, not that are worth considering. Um, playing Canada, I guess. Oh, um, Dave, it's a good thing your mother's Canadian, David, because you've just alienated our Canadian listeners. I, I would like to say I am not party to those comments. If you want to cancel, David, CFL fans, I, you're welcome to do so. I, I think even CFL fans would admit that the, the at least they kind of pay the- Stop, 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 right. don't stop. <laughs> Sorry, Canadian listeners, right. Um, but the NFL is effectively a monopoly where yes. they've got a handful of owners and they make decisions together for their personal interests. Hollywood in the fifties with the studio system was a similar kind of, of monopoly system where, good analogy. where, where the Hollywood heads, you know, had dinner once a week or whatever it is they did made decisions about people's careers uh, and signed people to long-term contracts much in the same way that some professional sports do. Um, whereas I think, you know, the, the, media conglomerations we have today and the kind of proliferation of, of alternative venues for people to do things. Sure, everyone wants a Disney contract, but if you get kicked out by Disney, you have alternative ways of, of 
making a, a living. Um, so I think that there's that similarity. The other sort of analogy that came to mind were the kind of anti-vice societies that existed at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Places, I mean, actually the epicenter of this is really your, your hometown of Boston, the sort of you know, watch and ward society, uh, which was a sort of private organization designed to try to sort of stop certain kinds of speech from entering Boston. Uh, it was established in 18, yeah, 1878. Uh, and there was a whole sort of raft of literature that they had effectively banned in Boston. Uh, things like uh, really racy stuff like Leaves of Grass or All Quiet on the Western Front or things that would clearly offend the sensibilities or get assigned to every high school student in America today. Um, Voltaire. Um, but lots of theater productions couldn't be done in Boston because, not because of, of legal restrictions, Per se, but because of you know this organization would come in and say, okay, we're not we're going to protest this particular theater because they put on this racy play, um, and so you actually had sort of Boston editions of books that cut out all the racy bits, uh, even for books that, at least in my mind, aren't particularly racy. Um, do you think that's a, a decent analogy potentially for for what cancel culture is? Not not. Uh... I think the impulses are the same, but mm. I think it's slightly different because um, it's institutionalized mm. in some way and thus was fairly effective. Whereas what we see now, and this is, and the phrase that's often used is a mob, mm. right? Uh, what you see is egregious behavior occurs and because of the ubiquity and reach of the internet, especially social media, various social media platforms, um, the sort of, as critics would say, a mob forms and a digital mob forms and you and acts quite quickly before it moves on to the next thing. Another reason it, it's slightly different than what you, you were describing. So, so there's not an institutionalized form to it. It's also not very long lasting because it often moves on to the next controversy. So, you know, you, you talked about the, the woman from Disney. I had forgotten about her, even though that was only three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, but because it, last week it was Mr. Potato Head and, and, and Dr. Seuss. And this week, I expect we're going to have a major debate that's going to take on all kinds of ugliness about the monarchy because of the Oprah Winfrey interview with uh, uh, Meghan and Harry that aired last night. And we're going to mm -hmm. have all sorts of transatlantic pearl collection this week, and it'll be something else next week. Um, and so it, it's not as determined as, okay, saying, okay, we've got to keep leaves of grass out of Boston for the next okay. 40 years. Cause it's going to, um, it's going to pollute the minds of young people. Hmm. Well then is, I guess it's, ephemeral. it's ephemeral now. It's ephemeral. Well, if, if, if it's ephemeral and if the consequences for many of the people who are being quote unquote canceled are, are actually pretty minimal um, for in, in most cases, um, is this simply a distraction? Is this a tool by, uh, a, at least in the United States, a political party that's out of power to distract from, from other political issues? I don't think it's a deliberate distraction in the sense that I don't think the leadership of the Republican Party has like made a decision to embrace cancel culture and to push back against this 
because they, to distract from either divisions within their party or the fact that the Senate just passed, uh, you know, $1.9 trillion relief bill, COVID relief bill, right? I don't think it's as, as transactional as that. I do think it's a distraction. I think that for many, or, or for, for, for many on the right who've embraced this, it's an expression, it's the latest front in an ongoing culture war and you were, in fact, the, the example of Band in Boston you talked mm. about a century ago is an example of that. That's been ongoing forever, arguably, in American culture um, and will we'll continue for the foreseeable future. But it, it's taken a particularly, uh, it's particularly salient right now for on the right because it's an expression of anxiety about the changes in the culture. This is why Mr. Potato Head is important or why mm. Dr. Susie is important. You're coming and taking the things I used to love as a child away from me. Well, mm. the, nobody's coming to do that. But it's an expression of fear about the changes in the culture, especially the fact that, and there was also a report last week about uh, white birth rates in the United States that took oh, on quite a eugenic, uh, eugenicist uh, tone, uh, especially in a context of, whites becoming the largest minority in the United States in the next few decades. And so I think for a particular strand of the electorate and of the population, this resonates because it represents, the, these changes represent um, danger that they fear. Um, so so I, I'm not even sure they, that, so I don't think it's as transactional as this is a distraction. I think it's a manifestation I think it, it, it functions as a distraction and it's a manifestation of the anxieties around a kind of group of issues and trends in the, in the broader culture that some people, not all, and that's important to bear in mind, but some people in the United States are very anxious about and mm. it's taken a, it has a political manifestation, but it's not as, it's not as clearly transactional as, okay, we're going to distract people with this because we don't have effective policies right now. It's more, God, I, you know, I can't believe, you know, first the black guy was president, now Biden's president, and they're taking away Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Now, now the going back, the, the Harper's letter that I mentioned 20 minutes ago, um, you know, which is signed by, by a number of, of prominent people, uh, academics and intellectuals and, and politicians and other things, argued that cancel culture was going to sort of limit public debate and limit the, the scope of, of, of free expression. Is that something you're worried about? Um, I think we always have to be worried about it. I mean, if you believe in, in individual liberties and if you believe in the First Amendment, one of the real challenges that, that uh, we, we always face um, as members of a liberal society, and I'm using liberal with a small L here, I'm not, I'm not, it's not a political statement, um, is the degree to which we need to tolerate intolerance <laughs> because we believe in tolerance and toleration, right? And where you draw those boundaries is a very vexing question. And it's not an easy question. I mean, this is a, this is a philosophical question hmm. that's, that's uh, not, it's not easily answered and never, will never be fully resolved. So of course it's a worry. But on the other hand, it, it, this is where I think your comment early on that cancel culture is just political correctness repackaged is true too. Because you know, when the backlash started against politi alleged political correctness in the 1980s, 
the arguments were the same. Oh, they're seeking to limit what we can say. And Trump and Trumpism, a big part of its appeal, based on what people who voted for President Trump mm. and supported President Trump say, oh, we can say what we want again. So there is a there is a there is an appeal or there's a fear on the part of some that political correctness or cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, is an attempt to limit free expression. Mm. And I'm not talking about the, 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 the First Amendment arguments. I think those are non-starters in most cases. But there is that sense of they won't let us say what we want to say anymore. And I think that's a real concern. On the other hand, what people frequently want to say is things they shouldn't say. You know, or, you know, yeah. you know, you know it's offensive speech, even if it's not illegal speech. And, and I think and what, we should be nicer to each other. and We shouldn't be saying these things. Thanks, right. <laughs> And when people do say those things, I think what they also want is to be able to say those things without having any consequences for it, you know, and, and, and that, that in some ways they're trying to sort of limit the freedom of speech of other people. They want to be able to say the racist thing without being called out on it. Right, right, right. So I can say what I want. I, I can say X racist thing, but you can't call me a racist. That's exactly. Because um, that's, that's offensive to me and that's me. the worst thing you can say in this culture. <laughs> Well, okay, you know what's worse? The racist thing you just <laughs> said. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. Uh, we will see how, what the next thing to be canceled is. Maybe us. Frank, what, what's the... Uh... <laughs> well, I'm amazed we haven't been canceled yet. No, 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 there is a dimension of this that I do find interesting, and Dr. Seuss raised this uh, be before we wrap up. And this isn't where the debate was last week, but it's something I think about a lot, or I have been thinking about a lot. So... What we see with the Dr. Seuss books that were canceled, sorry, they weren't canceled. I'm, I'm falling prey to the, the, mm. the, that are not going to be published and sold anymore, mm. is those books. So um, if I ran the zoo, what did you, you know, and this is to think well, what I saw on Mulberry Street, for example, they have, I'm getting the title wrong, but it, it doesn't matter. Um, they've got imagery that's frankly racist in them and caricatures in them mm. that, when Dr. Seuss created them in the middle of the 20th century, hmm. were either humorous or just weren't acknowledged. You know, and as you said, Dr. Seuss's life was a journey like all of ours, hmm. and he changed his views over the course of his life, and that's great. But what one element of this that interests me is what we do with piece works of art hmm. that contain imagery or language or aspects that we now find unsettling. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, this, this preoccupies me in, in a couple of ways. The first is I think a lot of these pieces of art are still valuable. And it's how do you make a distinction about what to do with that, uh, what to do with them, and how to interpret them in light of that. Secondly is, of course, the fact that the stuff where there is, there are actions that we are engaged in today. There are, there are cultural productions we are engaged in today. There are words we are writing or even you and I might be saying today, David, that in 20 years or 30 years time, we might regret for the very same reason. It's not as mm -hmm. though we have some inherent wisdom that Theodore Geisel, who's Dr. Seuss, lacked in the 1940s. Standards change, opinions change. Um, and and so, uh, so I'm, this this question interests me. What what do you do yeah. with this kind of stuff? Now, with Doctor Seuss, I think it. I think they made the right decision. I think when you're dealing with children's books in particular, yeah. that's different from looking at say Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain with its use of a racial epithet. That's the 
arguably the worst word in it that you can possibly mm-hmm. say in American English. Um, you know, it, but but that that word is in Huckleberry Finn for a deliberate reason, and I think it works. That you know, it, I think we can read it in a particular context in a way that we wouldn't read if I ran if I ran the zoo. Mm. Well, looked at if I ran the zoo. So I, I do think we need some some subtlety and gradations here. But I think it does make things complicated. So, you know, movies from the 40s and 50s and television programs well, often have problematic imagery. You know, I've always, you know, Casablanca is one of my favorite films. The way Sam is presented, I mean, on one hand, Sam's an incredibly important and sympathetic character. On the other hand, it's not unproblematic it seems to me when i view that but i don't think we should get rid of casablanca mm. because of that but is so there's that and, and sorry david i'll let you i'll let you let you into response and, and this has been on my mind lately because i've been wa- re-watching the shield while i've been working out in the mornings um on 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 um a streaming service and I don't know whether you ever watched The Shield, but it was a crime drama on FX in the U.S. in the early aughts, in the last decade. I think it ran from like 2002 to 2007 or eight or some, some approximately mm. that. And I actually think it's a kind of forgotten classic because it kind of fell between The Sopranos and The Wire. But it, in terms of the transformation of American television drama, I think The Shield was really important, not least because it was on network television there's swearing in it there's sex in it there's all kinds of things in it that weren't previously on network television but some of the language because it portrays gang life in los angeles at the turn of the Mm. century it uses language that we do not use now even in culture in cultural manifestations or we only use it in particular circumstances and when i hear that certain words i'm like oh i can't believe they did that and i get why they're doing it i don't think it's if i ran the zoo i'm not saying the shield should be canceled but it makes me think, yeah, 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 this is a complicated question. Sorry. Well, there, there's an interesting sort of uh, parallel to that on, I know you don't have Disney Plus, so you actually haven't seen The Mandalorian or, or I have not. All, all this other good stuff you're missing out on. But anyway, they've got a bunch of Disney content on there, including, oh, right, yeah. including uh, the Muppets, who are, are very near and dear to my heart and an important part of my intellectual development as a child uh, and emotional development and, and not only as a child. Anyway. Some of the stuff that the Muppets did in the late 1970s, racial stereotypes that they play to at various points in time. So when they added uh, the, the Muppets to, uh, to Disney+, Plus, they put content warning on a handful of episodes, um, which I think is an interesting way of, of sort of framing that. And some people were very angry about this content warning, which lasts you know 10 seconds before the episode starts. But there's other stuff that Disney has decided simply not to put up a Disney Plus at all, things like Song of the South, which are irredeemably racist. I mean, there's lots of other Disney properties that have problems and, and they could probably, if they did a full accounting, uh, want to put content warning on half of the stuff Disney's made over the years. Um, but I think that's sort of an interesting corporate choice about, you know, here we have this stuff, most of it's pretty good, some of it's problematic, and we're going to try to address it in a way that's, uh, meaningful, uh, but, but but still let people access it and make decisions for themselves. Um, so I thought it was an interesting choice on their part. Do you think, do, I mean, do you approve of that choice? I mean, do you think that's the right choice? Um, I, I think that's probably the, yeah, I mean, give, give it, given the kinds of things that they are, are flagging on, uh, on the Muppets, you know, it, it's stuff that when this aired in 1978 was within the sort of 
what was considered acceptable then, um, you know, and, and, but it is uh, problematic. And so I think it's a way of, of, of and often it's, it's 10 seconds in a half hour episode. Uh, so it's not usually a, a, a pervasive problem. Yeah. I don't know, it's tricky. Uh, and I think it's, it's tricky about how, how to sort of deal with, with old art of a variety of kinds, whether it's Dr. Seuss, the Muppets, or something uh, intended for adults. Uh, well, all, all in the family is a good example. Yeah. I mean, all in the family is, first of all, very funny, but it's also mm. really insightful and incisive social and political commentaries. Mm. Uh, but you can't imagine them making a program like All in the Family today, putting it on, on network television or on a streaming service. I, it, it's really uh, hard to imagine, not least because the character of Archie Bunker, who I think <laughs> there are real Trumpian elements mm. to All in the Family, except that Archie Bunker actually has slightly more soul and sensitivity than, <laughs> mm. than Donald Trump did. Um, but but it, it's a really... Uh, I mean, I think it's I think it's a landmark in television history. I think it's really, really important. Uh, but I, I, it's hard to imagine them airing that today. I, I just, even though obviously, so our television is much more innovative and explicit than it, than it was forty years mm -hmm. ago. But, but in certain ways, it's not. Comedies very rarely age well. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, even that's true for Shakespeare. The, the, the we don't find the comedies all that funny, but the dramas still work. Um, partially because it's so, so dependent upon the particular culture that it comes out in. Yeah. Right, time for last drops, perhaps. Right, I've got two. Um, first of all, it's a follow-up from our, um, our recent episode, which is that the Biden administration has announced that they're using the 2008, they're bringing back the 2008 citizenship test, so they're not using the Trump era citizenship test that we spoke about, uh, which I thought was an interesting development. Uh, so, and second... David, you organized the SASA conference over the weekend. Uh, it was an online conference. You, we talked about this a little bit in previous episodes, but I wonder if you could just briefly reflect on your experience organizing an online conference and what form it took and whether it worked or not doing a conference online. Yeah, so uh, SASA, the Scottish Association for the Study of America, uh, which is now slightly over uh, 20 years old. Um, I've been the chair of SASA for a few years now. Uh, we decided to sort of look at, at going online as 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 an opportunity in some ways uh, to 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 try new things. And so instead of just having one day of conferencing, we had a whole sort of week worth of events, and we had a couple of, of virtual walking tours and and other of, and a postgraduate workshop uh, during uh, the the week leading up to the Saturday conference, um, which is not something you can do if you're doing a in-person conference. Uh, so that was uh, an opportunity we, we took. And then we decided to sort of restructure the format. And so instead of 20 minute papers, we gave 10 minute papers, um, oh, uh, which I thought worked really, really well. I mean, I'm, I honestly get sometimes bored in a 20 minute paper, especially as enthusiastic about it. So, so, but 10 minutes allows you to sort of the, the speakers to, to get in and get out, say, try to say something interesting and catch your attention uh, in 10 minutes. Uh, and uh, it also, I thought was, uh, made the conference more accessible for, for grad students, especially grad students who are relatively early in the research process, especially grad students whose research has been sidelined by the pandemic to go in and say, look, look, I haven't been able to do all of my research yet and go to the archives, but here's my ideas, what do you guys think? 
which I think is really what conferences are best at. Um, and so, you know, we did, did shorter papers, but, uh, and that seemed to work really well. Uh, hopefully we'll be back in person next year and who knows what that's going to look like, but, uh, but uh, yeah, SASA was a good time over the weekend. Oh, good. I highly, re highly recommend it for people in the future if they're interested in, uh, in doing any kind of American studies kinds of things, uh, either if you're from Scotland or not in Scotland. Well, I'm, uh, th that's really good. And it, what will be interesting, and it's probably not a discussion for now, is uh, the degree to which uh, some of these things we've adopted as a result of the pandemic are things that we keep. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. So I imagine that most conferences will have some sort of digital mm -hmm. element in the future, even if we do seek or yeah. want to go back to see each other in person. But anyway, well, you mentioned yeah. you mentioned that, um, you know, 20 minutes can be too long to listen, and we're probably up to an hour now. So, okay. we wrap this up. <laughs> so what's your last drop, David? Well, so I was uh, excited over the weekend to learn of a uh, new display of artifacts from the Alamo that are going to go on display at the Alamo, which is usually not something I would care about. But if these are, are artifacts uh, related to the Alamo that are uh, owned by the, the one of the world's leading collector of Alamo artifacts, who do you think, Frank, just that would be likely to have a collection of Artemo Alamo artifacts that they, see, I can't even talk now, uh, that they are going to, uh, uh, that donated to actually the state of Texas to put on display? All right. This is an interesting You'll never guess. Okay, I will not guess. So it's not somebody, it's not an obvious Texan like Matthew McConaughey. No. Uh, it's, Phil, it's Phil Collins. The, the singer and drummer from Genesis, it turns out, uh, is a huge aficionado of the Alamo, which came from watching a Disney movie about the Alamo in the, came out in the 50s or something. That was going to be my guess. That film, he would have seen that film, you know, the, the one with John Wayne. Um, I think it, he might have actually been the, the Davy Crockett film that was on oh, right. the, the okay. Disney Saturday morning. Anyway. He became uh, interested in it through television and through through film uh, a long time ago and, and had a collection of stuff uh, associated with the Alamo based on this childhood fascination. And he's now donated to the state of Texas and they're putting it on display in the Alamo. So what, so what things are in this collection? Oh, there's like a cannon and there's some bits from uniforms and buttons and other kinds of things. Yeah, so it's you know, the kinds of historical artifacts you'd expect from the mid 19th century battles. There, there's, you know, unif yeah, yeah, I see some uh, guns, some, some helmets, uh, there's a cannon, a couple flags, those kinds of things. Right, I Phil would, Collins. I would I, never I, have guessed that. Yes, I would I, never have guessed now, that. Now, the question I have is whether they're gonna have Genesis music playing in the background, um, you know, while you're strolling through the album, because I think that would be great uh, you know, the, the drum solo from something in the air tonight could be playing. I don't know. Um, but I just found that very amusing that, that Phil Collins is a, is a big fan of the Alamo. So American history is popular everywhere for who knows what reason. Great, Frank, until next week. All cheers. right, David, cheers. <laughs> the Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.